Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined for the last time ever while he's in his 20s by Zach Davis. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought this was a celebration. Um, not, not a funeral. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm finally aging out of the, the 20s. Yeah, so. we've always talked about, like, do we take young out of the headline when when we're both in our 30s yeah I think, how are you feeling now that it's actually coming i i feel good about it you know like my 20s were great but i can't say i'm like sad to leave them right yeah. i don't know i always tell people like i felt 30 once i got married like that that was the mm. more the thing that like pushed me into like a new frame of mind and think about where i was in life and how old i am but no i'm really excited i'm looking forward to 30 all right and what's well coming. You picked out our celebratory drink for this episode. So what do we have? We're having some champagne, um, and this has got some Pinot Noir in it, so it's got a nice little pink hue to it. It's very pretty. Yeah, Pinot Noir is a red grape, so it's it's got the, that's where the color comes from. But it's really pretty. The bubbles are really pretty. So. Sounds really pretty. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. And who are we talking to this week? This week, we're talking to Jenna Barnett. She is a senior associate culture editor at Sojourners Magazine and the host of the audio miniseries, Lead Us Not. Yeah. So last week on the show during Signs of the Times, we talked about the new report about Larch founder Jean Vanier that detailed some sexual misconduct and uh, abuse of power uh, throughout his career. Um, and this is this came out sort of at the same time that Jenna and the team at Sojourners is coming out with this miniseries, this podcast on Vanier and and what's behind that. So we wanted to dig deeper into that story. It's a hard conversation to have. Uh, so just acknowledging that straight up at the beginning. Um, but we think it's a really important one. And in Signs of the Times, we're going to talk about the crackdown on the Catholic Church in Nicaragua and uh, the introduction of robot food service to Notre Dame. Yes. And then during As One Friend Speaks to Another, we're going to be talking about methods of prayer as they relate to our forms of communication. So stay tuned for all of that. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from Nicaragua, where a judge sentenced four Catholic priests and two seminarians to a 10-year prison term on Monday on charges of quote unquote, treason and spreading false news. Yeah, this is a really important story that's been developing for a while now, not one we've covered yet. And feels like this is sort of a, a time to really just kind of like alert the audience, weigh in on it a little bit. The head of their diocese, Bishop Rolando Alvarez, he was arrested with the priests in August for allegedly organizing violent groups. He's right now under house arrest and awaiting trial that's going to begin soon. So the other four priests and seminarians and a, and a lay person that is a camera operator for, for the group, um, is, they've, all been, they've all been sentenced to 10 years in prison. And from what we understand, this is not a, a trial in the sense that we would understand no, it here in the United door, States. Yeah. <laughs> for one thing. And the government uh, 
appointed both the defense and the prosecution. So there, this was a sham trial. It was, yeah. Yeah, what a lot of experts are yeah. saying. And yeah. as you said, this has been going on for a while. It started in 2018. So the president of Nicaragua is Daniel Ortega. He's been in power since 2007. And in 2018, there were wide protests against his government because they introduced some social security reforms. And since then, his government has been cracking down on anyone who supported those protests, which includes the Catholic Church. Yeah, it's been really any independent civil actor has has started has really yeah. felt kind of a crackdown from the government. The church was kind of the the last one standing and and now they've really moved into expelling some people, jailing some people, trying to intimidate people into silence. Last year the the Mother Teresa's order, the missionaries of charity were expelled from Nicaragua. The papal nuncio was expelled. In general, I think it's a bad if if you've kicked out Mother Teresa's nuns, not a great sign for your approach to human rights. And so that all happened. And then we've got these jailings. And, and these are pretty clear public intimidation of other people in the church who might be speaking out in defense of human rights in the country. Yeah. And there's at this point, I think it's fair to call this a dictatorship. He, he's been in term for four consecutive terms. And in the 2021 election, Ortega jailed all seven of the opposition candidates. So people don't have an avenue for fighting back. All democracy has basically been undermined. At this yeah, point. and and even as he is getting older, and you might say, okay, well, at least you know when he if he dies someday, then you know maybe there's some there's some chance of things changing. But it seems like um, Ortega and his family are kind of gearing up. Yeah, his for, wife is the vice president. Yeah, and he's got children who seem sort of ready to to take over right where dad left off. So um, the situation is looking pretty bleak right now, and it's leading a lot of people in the church to ask at least the the global church to ask you know what do we do why hasn't the vatican really said anything about this so you know so far they've had a pretty muted response there you know pope francis has said something late last year about not really understanding the Nicaraguan government, but he's open to dialogue with them. Hasn't really said anything about the jailing of these priests or the house arrest of this bishop, at least not directly. Yeah. Pope Francis did actually order another bishop in the country to leave after he'd been attacked by Ortega's supporters. Supporters. So clearly he he's aware of what's going on in the country. And like cases we've seen in China and elsewhere, you know, he has to put on his diplomatic hat and, you know, decide whether speaking up forcefully is going to endanger people on the ground or shut down what channels of communication they might have with this government. Yeah. Our colleague Kevin Clark had a piece in America about the, and he talked to some experts that are kind of watching the situation. And you, that's the thing is you just never know what's happening behind the scenes diplomatically with the Vatican. And the thing that Pope Francis is always weighing in his mind is if I speak out, is that going to make the situation worse for the people on the ground? Because right now, it seems like the Ortega administration is pretty impervious to any type of international pressure at the moment. Yeah. So as we said earlier, uh, the trial for the bishop is still to come. So we'll be keeping an eye on that and we'll keep our listeners updated. What's our next story, Zach? So our next story comes from the University of Notre Dame, uh, who announced this week that they are launching a robot food delivery service on campus. Yeah, so they're partnering with Grubhub and Starship Technologies to have 30 on-demand robots that will deliver food from campus eateries to anywhere on campus. This is the first time I'm hearing about uh, this school, Notre Dame. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I, I've been told it's a Catholic school somewhere in the Midwest. Mm. Um Sounds good. But uh, I was curious because I just like I have a lot of thoughts on this. Like th there's a little picture of the robots. They look like roving like 
mini RV cars or no? Or, or like the the Roombas that, uh, that yeah, yeah, sweep yeah. your that will or like, Wally. They kind of yeah, look like Wally. They look like mini Wallies. Yeah. Yes, and I imagine <laughs> these things are just going to be like going around campus, uh, totally not getting messed with by college kids coming home from bars. Presumably, the university thinks that these things are going to last. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk about this is because. I feel like this is, I try not to be a technology doomer, right? I'm generally bullish on the the goods that technology can bring us, but college kids don't need this. I'm no. sure this is what other generations said about like us and our rock walls and our fancy gyms and stuff, but they college kids do not need robots to deliver food to them. In fact, like especially coming out of COVID when college kids are experienced a ton of isolation, one of the best parts of college is having to eat in common in dining yeah. halls, right? Yeah, totally. I am I'm against any innovation in colleges that happens after the time I graduated. The mm. uh, the dorm I lived in at University of Virginia was pretty old and decrepit and like 2 years after I moved out, they tore it down and put up this like luxury hotel and it with just with air conditioning yeah. can you believe it <laughs> televisions i was it was i was uh, disgusted <laughs> yeah and I, I really just i think universities should be thinking about what are the ways that we foster community right especially catholic ones and i feel like this is another modern day convenience that is just going to push a lot of people to spend more time alone and as we know, Americans are more lonely than they've ever been. And in the one place in, in society where there's just like social lubricant all around, like pushing yeah. you to make friends. And even just talking to another human being who's preparing your food and like acknowledging that there's someone else on the other end of this life sustaining thing that you need. <laughs> and instead just having it magically appear at your doorstep. Yeah. And I guess, the, you know, for the university, the, the robots haven't quite yet figured out how to unionize, so they won't have to worry about that. Yeah. Um, you know, we should say in case Notre Dame, you know, thinks that we're picking on her specifically, it, it seems like there are even Jesuit schools doing this. So I hope this is like the early stages of a trend that people are going to realize is a bad idea and it goes back on, but that remains to be seen. And now stick around for our conversation with Jenna Barnett. Joining us from San Diego is Jenna Barnett. Jenna is the Senior Associate Culture Editor at Sojourners and the host of the audio miniseries, Lead Us Not. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jenna. Thanks for having me, Ashley and Zach. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on and unpacking what is uh, a really difficult subject. So I just want to first say thank you for you know all the work and reporting you've done on this story, because I think it's a real service um, to large community, to the church as a whole. Um, so first of all, thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just you know, give a brief introduction for our listeners who might not know um, who Jean Vanier or Larche is. You know, okay, who was he and how was he perceived prior to the finding of abuse after his death? Yeah, so Jean Vanier pre two thousand twenty was widely known as a, a living saint, and he personally was someone who I deeply admired for founding Larche, which is now a network of uh, over 100 communities around the world that where people with and without intellectual disabilities try to live together as equals. And in his writing, he often promoted the need for a faith that had tenderness and vulnerability and generosity. And um, it was just a honestly just a beautiful 
thing. And it it changed my faith, changed my life. Can you just say what attracted you to Vanier, like how it changed your faith? When when did you encounter that? Yeah, yeah. So I lived in a lot of intentional communities throughout my life, but first did that in college. And his book called Community and Growth, if, if you live in an intentional community, it's almost like required reading, sort of like the Bible on how to live in community well. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I first encountered him and Larsh was through that book. And it was at a time in my life when I was uh, feeling pretty disillusioned in my faith, heard a lot about a faith that focused on the afterlife and converting people, but wasn't really doing much about racism, sexism, war, etc. And so for him, he kind of became this symbol of another way to practice your faith. And I think I let that symbol get a little bit too big, to be honest. This is a little tangential, but this idea of intentional communities is something that's becoming more popular, not just among religious people, but young people in general who are feeling a little bit atomized. Uh, so can you describe what, what that looks like in, in practice? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a funny word, right? Intentional community. Like, what did you accidentally get into community yeah. <laughs> together? Often what intentional communities look like are places that you live together in a home around a shared purpose. And often that purpose is faith or hospitality. And I guess the intention part is you're loving each other with intention. You're, there's often like morning prayer, weekly meals. Um, and I think they're also just catching on now because of housing prices are so high that, you know, it's, it's convenient um, <laughs> to live with multiple people. Have you have you visited a large house ever? Mm-hmm. Do you have a first hand account of what that looks like? Yes, I've, I've visited a few large communities, um, mainly in DC. Um, and in the first episode of the podcast, I I went and visited a large house to hear how they were processing, just to hear what was it like to process the news when it first came out, and how has that been ongoing? Yeah, and what were your impressions of of this community? Like, because it is there was this charismatic founder, but it's not like he's managing each and every one of these houses no. around the world. Yes. So I imagine yeah, they, was. you know, take on their own flavor, but what what's essential about them? Yeah, they definitely all take on their own flavor. And Larsh is pretty intentional about that since it, they exist in so many different countries to try not to like parachute in well, like a Western culture into every country. But I do think a common thread is a little bit of silliness and less pretense. Yeah, wild, unique hospitality has been what I've experienced and good food. Let's maybe go back to Vanier a little bit. So I interrupted you, but you were saying we got revelations about abuse that he had sort of kept secret in 2020. What what was the scope of what we found out then? In 2020, we learned that Jean Vanier had been spiritually and sexually abusive towards at least six women. And these were largely large assistants who he was supposed to be offering spiritual accompaniment to. Um, and large assistance is the term that Larsh uses for people living in large communities who do not have intellectual disabilities. Mm. And w- were these considered abusive because of the the power dynamics at play mostly? Like he was supposed to be offering spiritual direction. He was a spiritual guide and he sort of took advantage of those dynamics is that what we understood at the time yeah the the report in 2020 used the language of exploitive characterized by a psychological hold and a dangerous power dynamic there were a few quotes from victims 
in that report, but they were vaguer at that time um, about what all the abuse entails. Gotcha. And I mean, nonetheless, this still probably sent some shockwaves throughout I mean, the world, I mean, that was a that was a huge news story when it happened. But you, oh, yeah. your reporting has been a lot about how it impacted um, the large communities and the people that were really drawn by Vanier's philosophy at the time. Um, what have you been finding about how people have been dealing with this? Yeah, I try to avoid saying it's a podcast about Jean Vanier, right? Because I think we we often hear stories that focus on on the abuser. And and I don't want to I don't want to throw shade at those because I think it's a, a human instinct to to try to make a, an evil we don't understand understandable, sort of shift an unknown evil into a known evil. It gives us a little bit of power back. But for this podcast, it was important to us to say, okay, let's not just focus on him. What about the people who are left cleaning up the mess in some way? the people who directly experienced the abuse, but also who were disillusioned by him, who let his theology shape their own personal theology and now have to think about, hmm, is there something I have to extract from my own theology now that I know the person who was articulating that theology was abusive? I think you're you're raising like the, the sort of the key questions um, that you were interested in exploring in the podcast. Um, but while you're in the middle of reporting this and talking to people, um, we got a new report um, just mm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. What 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 did you find in that massive report? Yes. So first, we learned that the abuse impacted more women than we initially knew. So 2020, six women. Now we know it's at least 25, and that Vanier's mentor, who was the chaplain of the original large community in France, also had been abusive to, I believe it's over 20 women. Hmm. And it's likely more in both cases, the, the report seems to indicate. And that in itself is horrifying. The biggest thing that surprised me was we learned that the entire founding story of L'Arche that Vanier had articu articulated for years was essentially not true. It was not his real motivation for founding L'Arche. Yeah, so that gets to someone else we wanted to ask you about, which is uh, Thomas Felipe. He's a Dominican priest who was kind of a spiritual mentor to um, to Vanier. So can you tell us who that was and what his role in this founding story actually was? Yes. So now if you really want to dig into the history of L'Arche, you have to go pre-L'Arche to when Vanier met Thomas Philippe, who you'll often hear referred to as Père Thomas. And Philippe ran this school community in France that Vanier became a part of pre-Larche in the 1950s. And it was, you know, supposed to be a place where you go to get spiritual formation and religious studies. Now we know that really its main purpose was to bring together these people with these mystical sexual practices that were sort of a distorted form of a Marian theology that imagined incestuous relationships between Mary and Jesus. And the Catholic Church, we now know, learned about this and basically stripped Philippe of all of his, you know, religious authority, asked Bonnier, do not associate with him, 
and broke up that community. When and when is that roughly? In the fifth, in the I believe the mid fifties. Got it. And even even the Pope at the time went so far as to tell Vanier, "Stop associating with Philippe. Like, don't don't do this." Vanier was trying to become a priest at the time, and the Pope just straight up told him, "Do not do not associate with this man." And he really just devoted the next several years to finding a way to reunite with Philippe and to regather the disciples of Philippe so that they could practice these um, mystical sexual practices that we now know are abusive in many ways. And so this is the sort of the real founding story of L'Arche. But what was the story that Vanier was telling people publicly? Yep. The story went something like this. So Vanier went on a tour of asylums, um, mental institutions, and he said his spiritual mentor took him on this tour. We now know that that is Philippe. And he was horrified what he saw there. And he felt called by Jesus um, to, as he said, take a couple men out of the institution and begin a community together to begin a different way of life. It's one that didn't rely on institutionalization, which was essentially a form, almost a form of imprisonment of people mm -hmm. with intellectual disabilities and more towards a community model. That's an important thing. It really helped jettison and push forward the deinstitutionalization of people with intellectual disabilities. That was the story. Was So then he took the two men, they lived together, and well, that was- Specifically, like he heard a call from God to do that, right? Yep. That this was sort of like the benevolent you know, charismatic founder who hears a call from God to do this thing. And and this report, this independent report reveals that that's all just a smokescreen for, for this other thing that's happened, that he's trying to reunite this disbanded group. Um, yes. Right. Yep. The report uh, very specifically uses the language of it was a screen to reunite around Philippe and his disciples. And the, the abuse was limited to that first community in rural France, right? It There aren't allegations or reports of it spreading throughout the larger network? As far as we know now, yes. Okay. Now, I think that's it's important to sort of just kind of lay out all of that story. But your podcast uh, and your reporting on this is also asking some really interesting questions, especially like, you know, how do we grapple with the fact that, you know, Larche and Vanier did propel a movement to like better the lives of people uh, with disabilities, that it did inspire a lot of people, that there is a lot of sort of like good fruit that was born mm -hmm. from this extremely flawed and abusive person. How are some of the ways that you're thinking about that or some of the people you're talking to are thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. There's this huge dissonance that, that you're getting at. Um, and often we have to deal with this reality that there are beautiful things that happen in the world and there are evil things that happen in the world, but rarely do those do we have to deal with those things in one community or even in one person and that is sort of the situation that's going on now on a personal level um a little bit of scripture has helped me um it's from genesis 50. it's a bible verse that's been helpful uh for me it's when um it's the story of when joseph's brothers come to him asking for forgiveness and they're crying he's crying and then he speaks and he says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good 
in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. Hmm. That's given me some comfort in knowing that, yeah, the intentions of Vanier, his, in, his intentions were not good. They were harmful. And yet still beauty came out of it. But it's one thing to, to say that intellectually, and then it's another thing to feel that. And I'm still working on that and processing that with different large community members. Yeah. One thing I struggle with is, you know, it's dangerous to see people as saints <laughs> when they're still on this earth, but it's not always helpful to make them complete villains either because every mm -hmm. person, on the one hand, every person is a mix of good and bad. On the other hand, not everyone, their bad does not mean sexually abusing people. Um, yep. But there's a, I think there's a temptation to turn these people into complete moral monsters, which is less complicated than grappling with the fact that, yes, maybe he abused women and, yes, he had genuine love for these mm -hmm. mentally or intellectually disabled people he was working with and did a lot of good in their lives. Yeah. The report does make clear that even though it wasn't the initial call from Jesus wasn't to move forward, the deinstitutionalization of people with intellectual disabilities, it was something that he grew to, to care extremely deeply about. So yeah, uh, that is complicated. He wasn't just a, a total villain. Um, but something there's a there's a theologian, Tanya Marlowe, that she she points out that, you know, while the bar is so low for spiritual leaders, like we're just asking you, don't be abusive. Mm -hmm. Like it's 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 really such a low bar, yet we're seeing what it feels like an epidemic of abuse revelation. So yeah, I think we have to to think about um what is the role of charismatic leaders in social movements? As Tina Boverman, uh, the president of Larsh USA, uh, said to Sojourners back in 2020 after the first report came out. I was thinking about how Me Too, has, the movement, has helped uh, society and the church kind of understand some of these questions. Because I was thinking if, if, you know, if this comes out 20 years ago, are we able to have like the nuance or the expanded understanding of abuse and consent and power dynamics mm. that we would even qualify this as, as bad as it really is? I don't know if that's something you've been sitting with, because I know it's, at different points, people had tried to report uh, some of these allegations and there, there were just not structures in place to, to deal with it, or maybe people didn't know what to do. Um, I'm curious how you, you've been thinking about that. Did this just kind of hit at a particular historical moment of resonance? Mm -hmm. I think Me Too and Church Too has given us the language to understand abuse and its many nuances a lot more. One of the reasons the re the latest report gives for why this took so long to come out was also, in a sense, the women had to really sit with what happened to them um, and try to make sense of it, try to understand it. And so sometimes it's a process to realizing um, how abusive something actually was. So I think that mm. the Church Too and Me Too movement has given us a lot of language for that. Yeah, you mentioned earlier uh, charismatic leaders. So I wanted to kind of just get an idea of, of what you mean by that. And you also have this this quote that um, you ask, are all heroes secretly villains? Does power, even spiritual power, ultimately corrupt? Um, do, you, do you come down to an answer on, on those <laughs> questions? <laughs> yes, and I'd be curious, y'all, uh, I'll answer to that too. You know, it does depend a bit on which day you ask me. And by charisma, do we just mean compelling speaker, magnetic personality? That what what you can see in the church Very and outside the church. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think magnetism gets at, probably describes it best. A person that, as Caitlin Beatty said, um, the author of Celebrities for Jesus, when I was interviewing for her, the person who walks into a room or is in a meeting, and you find that people people gravitate towards, they, they turn their posture towards them. They there's something about them. The, the best definition I've heard for charisma is, is being able to get the answer yes without asking a question. Mm, that's good. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you, and we dangerous. All know, yeah. And dangerous. Exactly. I mean, and that's oh, yes. To be clear. About, right? Yeah. <laughs> I meant your phrasing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but no, and I think that's what gets at this a little bit. Uh, and I don't know about you, but like, there are definitely, I have a similar reaction where it depends on the day you ask me, but I have grown to this position of like, <laughs> don't have heroes in the church in particular, right? Because you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. So I've seen myself like develop this like uh, hermeneutic of skepticism towards basically anybody who's, whose name I know who I don't know personally, and even people, you know, people that I know personally or have met. It's, it's easier said than done, right? Because if yeah. you think about it, Christianity in and of itself is a religion oriented around a charismatic leader. For sure. Yeah, so, as Catholics, we talk about different religious orders having charisms that come from their charismatic yeah. founders. Well, and like Jesus himself is like, I mean, I think that's what you're alluding to. Like Jesus himself was a charismatic religious figure, right? And yeah, yeah. So I think we're sort of primed to want to be inspired in that way. One of the things I think about a lot is even Jesus, the, the literal son of God was like, okay, I cannot do this by myself, 12 disciples. Mm -hmm. Like I need 12 disciples. And I think that that's a nice thought, right? It's good to have friends, but it's also something that organizations need to think about. Like even if even the literal son of God realized, I, I need help. I need friends who I can confide in. Sometimes I need to go to retreat to the ocean and get out of the spotlight. Um, how, how are we doing that within our organizations as well? Like having like shared responsibility, shared power. No, that's- Shared mic, yeah. These communities come from the same source, but they are, they've operated sort of independent, like independent mm -hmm. communities on their own, right? So they're able to kind of withstand some of this. Is that correct in your view, that look at it? Um, and more generally, like, what are you hearing from the community members at large? I, you've inter I know you interview some of them on the podcast. Yeah, I think that the structure of large is a good checks and balances. Like, it, it's a community model. So it, the, power isn't centered in one place. It's not all in France. It's, you know, there there are large communities in the US, Canada, Haiti, Palestine. And so, like, as you said, Vanier cannot be, could not be in all of those houses. Um, one of the stories I heard from my visit to Larsh and one of the Larsh Arlington houses, is they were talking about when they founded their community. And at first they were like, what are, what are we doing? And they had this joke with, where they would call 1-800-Jean-Barnier and um, say, hey, hey, Jean, what do we do? And as they said, it's not a number we call anymore. So I think even, even though, you know, Banya wasn't the leader of all of these houses, he was still someone who was forming the, the frameworks for how they lived in community together. I want to pivot to how Larsh has been handling these allegations, because mm -hmm. I do think if there is any small silver lining, it is the fact that they've been transparent about all this. It, the, in 2020, that report was the result of an internal investigation that they prompted, right? Yes. So, so yeah, how would you assess how they've 
how they've handled these allegations and maybe compared to how other uh, Christian institutions have have dealt with their own uh, sexual abuse scandals. Definitely. Yeah. Often what we see is say it's a church, say it's an organization, the founder or the past, the lead pastor, the elders, the people behind the scenes learn. He it's often he he abused someone and whether it's well, it's a bad reaction but often the re the reaction is fear because there's this idea of oh shoot if he goes down we all go down and then this beautiful mission can no longer continue in the world and of course that's an awful model right because anytime we're prioritizing the person who did the abusing over the people who were abused and who were marginalized while we're distorting Christian theology. But it's it's just a real fear. We can't continue the good work we're doing in the world. But Larsh has taken a different route. They have been very, I mean, 900 pages um, that they that they gave total access um, for two years for these scholars um, to dig up as much as they could to say, hey, we also want to figure out, has this abuse seeped into places within Larsh that we didn't know? Um, and then they made all of that public. Uh, yeah, transparency is huge there. I do have one thing I wish they would have done differently in, in the episode two of Lead Us Not. Uh, Tina Boverman and I talked about it. Again, she's the the leader of Larsh USA. So we learned in the, the most recent report that Vanier's abuse actually continued until his death in 2019, and they received their first allegation in 2016. And there are a lot of reasons that that complicated things. I'm not saying it was easy. First off, the, the woman who came forward um, asked to keep this um, private, and mainly she was wanting them to facilitate a, you know, some sort of conversation, some sort of healing between her and Vanier about it. But my question is, if you figure out even one allegation of abuse in 2016, what did you do to make sure he wasn't continuing that abuse? Um, and now we know he was. Yeah. And Vanier had a chance to kind of recant or repent or at least complain oh, yeah. about a lot of this stuff, you know, as, as you mentioned. And that was that that was just another layer that made it all harder to harder to mm -hmm. stomach. You know, I, I think it this goes to something we talk about a lot. It's like, where do we put our faith ultimately? Mm -hmm. Right. And you mentioned this came at a time where like you were looking for a new flavor of faith in your own life. You'd become disillusioned with one part and this other part was seeming familiar. But it's something I, I've been reminded of is like, okay, if it doesn't, like, if I don't go back to Jesus in, at the beginning of this, like, what is my actual attraction to this way of life? And where is that, like, ultimately coming from? Then it's really easy to get, like, sucked into, like, a building or a person or an ideology. And your reporting has helped just sort of clarify that for me, um, even with all of the events of the past, like, four or five years in particular in the Catholic Church. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad it's helpful. We're... I'm I'm trying to just ask as many people in large communities as possible what healing looks like for them because you know it looks different for all of us there's no one path. Yeah. Well Jenna, thank you for taking the time to talk to us um about this difficult story and this is going to seem like a 
little ironic question given we just talked about how it's dangerous to canonize people while they're alive. But we do ask all of our guests uh, if they could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Well, I guess my my first answer is I would never do someone alive. Yeah. <laughs> that that I've learned now. Um, I probably would only do someone who well, the church, the died. traditional like church rule about right. waiting a long, t- like waiting a long time. It's like it was there for a reason. Yep. Let's so that's as um, Carolyn Whitney Brown said. Let's get rid of the idea of living saints. It's supposed to only be dead people for a reason. Okay, I will go with Rachel Held Evans. Hmm. Someone who was on this podcast. Who was Rachel? Yeah, Rachel Held Evans was a public theologian. Um, wrote a lot about faith and doubt in ways that were very honest and often funny and very beautiful, but also so much of her work and her ministry was uh, pointing to other people who we should be listening to. And um, yeah, I think she was, she was, she was a public theologian on social media that sometimes it felt like Twitter was her church and uh, Twitter could use a little more church sometimes, I think. Mm. Well, um, we'll point people back to our conversation with her and um, uh, some other things that she's written. I think a very worthy candidate. So St. Rachel Held Evans. All right, uh, Jenna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, once again, the podcast is Lead Us Not, and it's from Sojourners, and we'll link to that in our show notes. Um, anything else you want to plug right now? Uh, no, I really appreciate y'all having me um, and for taking the time to talk to me about a, a, a difficult topic. Yeah, I hope you get back to some humor writing soon. Stay tuned for a humor article about uh, a recipe of John the Baptist. Oh, Oh, very excited. Locked in. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Coming out in the next issue. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Thanks, Jenna. Thank you. You always looked after me, brother, when we were children. You always had my back. You took all the blame when our father oh, caught us doing things that drove him mad. Through the years, I could lean on you when I messed up. I'd call you in the night, but I broke too many promises and we split up. Though I still need you. Looking for an Ignatian perspective on pop culture, current events, and spiritual happenings in the world today? Each week, join Jesuits, Friends of Jesuits, and everyday folks trying to live for the greater glory of God on AMDG, a Jesuit podcast, produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. What do we have this week, Ashley? 
So first, we want to say thank you to a couple new patrons, Jennifer Dawson and Richard Jenkins. Thank you so much for your support. We love our Patreon community. And if you want to be a part of it, you can go to patreon.com slash America Media. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Jenny Dawson there. Um college friend of mine so oh, nice. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is anyway i've just texted the jenny dawson that i know to see if that was her okay so um, if it's not her you're guilting I, her into doing it yeah exactly <laughs> but but if you're not that the other other jennifer i'm also grateful to you the next thing i wanted to bring up in parish announcements is that in the next couple weeks i'm going to be joining america media's pilgrimage to the holy land really excited to be going back the, i was there in 2020 like as the world was actively falling apart so i, I yeah i was in i was in jerusalem uh first week of march 2020. So I I got a lot of stories about what that time was like. But um, if you've got any prayer requests or or tips about the Holy Land, maybe if you've been, I'm happy to bring some prayers along the way and, you know, be praying for you uh, if in the place where Jesus walked and did his public ministry. So you can shoot me an email um, at jesuitical at americamedia.org. And finally, last week, we asked our listeners to share our conversation with Cardinal Robert McElroy with friends and family that they thought might benefit from it. Um, So if you are one of those friends and family that are new to the show, welcome. We are so happy to have you here. Um, And we hope you will stick around for more amazing interviews. Yeah. And it's just a reminder, you know, if if you're a regular listener to the show, the best way we we can share this program, this podcast is is with you. If it's you telling someone, hey, I love this podcast, Jesuitical. You've got to check it out, right? That is worth way more marketing than we could ever, ever afford or or know how to do. So please, uh, as you're able, uh, send, send the podcast around, especially if there's an episode that strikes your fancy. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week, as you we mentioned at the top of the show, I want to talk about prayer methods and communication. And I was thinking about advice I got when, I don't know, it must have been in high school, then <laughs> that maybe it was a, in a psychology class or therapy appointment, I don't remember. But the idea was if you want to get a guy or your dad or um, any man to actually like open up and talk to you, do it while you're in the car and you're not facing each other. And he, you know, you're both looking forward, but you're having this conversation. So like a road trip is like the perfect time to have a, a so deep many, conversation. So many guys listening right now are like, oh, that's how they've got that out <laughs> yeah. of me that one time. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I've always, you know, I took that advice to heart. I've had some great conversations with my dad on road trips. Um, but I actually thought it could apply to my own prayer life. Um, I have always hated talking on the phone like because it seems so direct and I don't know if I, I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to run out of something to say and or, you know, there'll just be awkward silence. And I think I have a similar kind of relationship with talking to God. I'm just like when it's so direct, I'm like I there's all this pressure to say the right thing to you know, fill up space <laughs> with with my thoughts and prayers. That uh, I just find it I find it difficult. And so I was trying to think about you know what would it look like to have a conversation with God that looked more like a road trip conversation, side by side, but not you know face to face. Yeah, I was fascinated by this when you brought it up to me because you know road trips there's enough space, enough silence for sort of something to come up and bubble up. But you can also like there's not not the pressure, right? You could you could throw music on, you could take a nap, you could just like uh, uh, roll down the window and sit in silence for a little bit, and, and and as something comes to you, you can be like, oh, by the way, I've been I've been thinking about this thing, or I've been always wanted to ask you this thing, and you know what is the prayer equivalent of that? It's almost like uh, my initial thought is like, 
that's what a retreat is, right? But but retreats tend to have sort of this this pressure on them that feel very direct, right? It's like, okay, I've got to go into a retreat and get something out of it, and it's got to be restful. I've got to have an insight about God and my prayer life, and if it doesn't happen, I've totally failed. And I think sometimes that expectation is like looking face-to-face head-on as opposed to that like side-by-side in the car that yeah. you're talking about. So we were talking about this with Father Eric Sundrup, um, and he had this I thought fascinating idea of like if you're going on a road trip with God, like what are the songs or audiobooks or podcasts that you would put on that you think would prompt something within you that you would want to share with God? Which I I haven't done it yet, but it sounds like such a good exercise. So if God gave you the ox cord, yeah, what would you put? <laughs> Huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I told Eric I was like Ashley's musical tastes are bad, so. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm sure God can handle it, but I can't. <laughs> um, the other thing I thought was fascinating about this is like how our like ideas of our, our modes of communication have influenced our prayer life, right? Because I think you see these stories all the time about our generation sort of like eschewing talking on the phone, right? And like the idea of leaving a voicemail is anathema to us. But we were, you know, taught how to pray when that was sort of the standard way of talking to someone who wasn't right in front of you. And now we have all these other ways of doing it too. And it's like, okay, well, what is a what does a prayer life with God look like that's like texting throughout the day? Um, I don't I don't know. And it, it, in some ways that's obviously not sufficient. It's not sufficient for any relationship. And so you need face-to-face encounters, I think, to keep keep things up. But, you know, it can't be a bad thing either to text with God throughout the day, whatever that actually means. Yeah. I need to, like, create a God contact in my phone. So just, hey. <laughs> Chat GPT for Chat God. Chat GPT for God. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll see. I, I, I don't think I would recommend that. Yeah. But listeners, maybe you want to try this exercise that Father Sundrip suggested. And so if you're on a road trip with God, what are the songs and podcasts that you would put on the radio? Yes. All right. If you have, if you want, if you feel comfortable sharing them, then please, please write us back and let us know what you would include there. You know, we could, we could throw together a Spotify playlist, and that would be anonymized in kind of a fun way. All right, I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/groups/jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.